Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. Uh, she's a librarian, and I'm a writer, sort of, and she's also my mom, and we read things, and we read The Crying of Laugh 49 by Thomas Pinchon. We've read other things, too, but that's just the thing we specifically read for this episode. So, The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon is considered technically a novella, but Pynchon considers it his second novel, published after V in 1966. Doesn't he pull the uh, Cujo gambit on this one? I'm not sure. I feel like I've read that he says he doesn't remember writing this. Possibly. Or he I mean, doesn't it, remember anything about it or something like that. It's in the mid-60s, I think. So it's considered one of the top examples of postmodern fiction. So I'll just leave that on the table to sort of puff up and get ready to discuss later on. Mm-hmm. Don't tell Jordan Peterson we're talking about postmodernism. He'll come and throw his lobsters at us. Well, I think postmodernism is like a huge kind of like... It's one of those words that everyone loves to say and no one knows what it means. And that's kind of the point. Maybe it's like the Ulysses of literary, you know, terms and devices where everybody claims to know what it is, but no one actually does. You know how many people, more people claim to read Ulysses than probably have even owned a copy of that. Uh, probably. So this is the story of a woman, Oedipa Moss. Who becomes the executor of an estate of her ex-lover. And as she attempts to execute this estate, she becomes embroiled in this mystery about this these two rival mail delivery systems. And just like any other Thomas Pynchon story, she becomes connected to these sort of weird, random characters that help her try to solve this mystery in air quotes about the this mail system. Mhm. Yeah, um I guess that's yeah, that's a pretty apt description of the actual events of the novel. Um so his estate which gets her started on this mail themed mystery has a set of stamps and the stamps are used by a secret underground mail system that's operating in Southern California in the 1960s that's called the Tristerio. I think it's just Tristero. Tristero. And that's the iconic horn that's usually affiliated with this novel. It's the symbol that's on the first edition and it's become this sort of a um, underground literary symbol. It's like a horn that's been muted. So I guess it has a second cap on the top of it. So to sort of symbolize that this mail service is underground, is secret. Yeah, or it's supposed to symbolize the... Because the, the unmuted symbol is the... The unmuted horn is the symbol of their rival uh, mail service, Thurn and Taxus. Thurn and Taxus. So, my first observation is, Pynchon really doesn't understand how mysteries work, and he also has no understanding of how modern mail systems work. Because this really isn't like, there's really no mystery. It's kind of like 
this comedic wandering adventure she goes on, almost like a, a sort of a picaresque modern take on a picaresque novel. And then it's so complicated. The mail system that the, he created is even more complicated than the regular mail well, system. Well, the mail system itself, that the it's kind of two different things, right? Because there's the Tristero as this sort of historical conspiratorial specter. And then there's the actual mail system that people are using in California in the 60s in this novel, which they tend to just refer to as the Waste which is a apparently an acronym that stands for We Await Tr- Silent Tristero's Empire. But that system is not that complicated. It's just a secret mail system where the mailboxes are disguised as garbage bins. Yeah, and I kind of feel like that's a heavy hit on some kind of symbolism. The trash system is, you know, the acronym is WASTE, and then also the trash goes into the, the mail goes into the trash, and a lot of the mail, the postal offices of this, like, underground mail system are actually, like, places where homeless people gather. So it's kind of like... Yeah. it's I don't know. It's not sophisticated, I think, especially for Thomas Pynchon. Well, I think, like, the, the mystery, I guess, is not so much how does this work or why is it happening. It's, is it happening? Does it exist? And I think there's, like, a couple ways to take it. I mean, one is that, like, Pynchon is sort of taunting the audience. And what he's trying to say is, like... And obviously this in and of itself is a contradiction. But he's, like, going after the idea of attempting to, like, read meaning into a text. And how that's, like, a pointless exercise that goes nowhere because... Oedipus spends all this time trying to decode all these symbols and connections and to, like, figure out this invisible hand of intention behind everything that is the Tristero system. And ultimately, she doesn't really learn anything of consequence and doesn't really accomplish anything of value. I think that this novel, and then we talked before the podcast about this story that we haven't confirmed where Pynchon says he doesn't remember writing this novel... I think this novel is sort of like the germination of a lot of things, especially when you, if you read Gravity's Rainbow, a lot of the small parts of this novella become major pension styles in larger novels. Sure, sure. So, I mean, you see things like the... this Defense contractor. Right. You see like this sort of... He has this obsession with, like, engineering and corporations, and that comes back in Gravity's Rainbow. And then this whole concept of, like, a story within a story. So as you're reading the novella, and she's unraveling the mystery between Tristo and Thern and Taxi, she realizes that they've been rivals since, like, the 18th century. and Earlier than that. Earlier than that. And at some point, one of the... Tristero is defeated by, I guess they call him TNT, and that's what's forcing them to go underground. And she discovers this by reading, by going to a play that's based on a play from the Renaissance that she discovers by reading a book by going to this publisher. So it gets very complicated, and a lot of stuff is like that. So she discovers this by following this path about a currently 
being produced play that's based on a Renaissance play that's based on this pirated copy of this short stories that's based on a play. So she ends up sort of having to go with, she has to involve herself in this secondary story, which is a play that's put inside this novel. And that's another device that Pynchon often uses where he makes up either imaginary books or imaginary plays and puts them inside the plot points. Yeah, and that's like another element of the like troll at work here where it's like in the service of telling you that looking for meaning is pointless, he has to deliberately create a play that is rich with meaning to illustrate his point that there is no meaning, but then it's like he's proven himself wrong because he's done exactly that in the text and even the text itself trying to tell you that there's no such thing as meaning is conveying a meaning. Well, I think another thing that happens in this is that as Oedipa is moving through the mystery of executor being the executor and trying to, you know, solve this mystery of these forged postal stamps, she takes up with this sort of revolving cast of like 1960s weirdos, which is also another thing that, you know, Pynchon does all of his novels have a huge amount of characters and some of them are very strange and exaggerated personalities. And I think you see that a lot in this novel. Yeah. So like the first, after she leaves her home, the first sort of people she meets are the, they're a band called the Paranoids. And I think that's another one of the ways that like, one of the other Things at work where Pynchon is like, fuck trying to fuck with the reader. Or it's like, yeah, this is a story about paranoia and obsession where the main character is literally followed around against her wishes by a band called the Paranoids. And that happens like a couple times throughout. We see it with the, like, in the play within the play and with a conversation she has later with, um, with, uh, the scholar character where this novel all but just tells you, hey, the Tristero is death. It means death. Oedipa's ex-lover dies and she has to confront death and now she's seeing death everywhere and it's scary. And it's like, the meaning is so obvious and upfront and so blatant that it's almost like daring you to try and dig for something, to like dismiss it and dig for something deeper and that's how you fall into the trap. Like, that, it's... Essentially trying to pull the same trick on you that the universe is pulling on Oedipa in the novel. I think there's just two things to say about that. The first is, I think that the band almost, in my mind, calls back to this sort of Greek tragedy device of having this chorus that sort of predicts what's going to happen or foreshadows what's going to happen. And I think... In a lot of ways, I think the band is a comment on current contemporary culture, which is this, because a lot of the story has to deal with like music, Oedipus' um, husband is a DJ, and then this band. And so it might be like a comment on contemporary music. It might also, because at that time, it's like the Beatlemania is, is kicking in. And then it also could be a callback to this, device of having almost like a Greek chorus tell. Because I think like with her name, like Oedipa implies that he may have been aware or concerned with sort of Greek tragedies. But I think like, here's how my mind is how Pynchon works. 
So, like, you know, it's the 60s, so, you know, he sits down, he has a nice Merlot, a couple tabs of acid, does a little trip, he gets a piece of paper, he writes down, like, 200 ridiculous names, and then the next day, when he's sober, he, like, decides he's going to use all of these characters in his novels. Because a lot of the people have the most ridiculous names. Well, I think the names are another part of this whole thing, where it's like, she has this therapist named Dr. Hilarious, who is like a devoted Freudian, and there's, I think it's kind of like, hey, you want to do a Freudian reading of this novel? I dare you, you fucking coward. Come up with a Freudian reading. Look, here's a guy named Mike Fallopian. Here's a dude named Kotex. Yeah. Her yeah, name's Oedipa. Read it like Freud would. And there's like, okay, I, I don't know, like... What is the Freudian reading of this? I'm not sure, even sure if there, if it's there, but it's like, if you're looking for it, you're going to find at least hints of it. Well, I think, I mean, some of it's kind of just over the top. Like, her name is Oedipa Moss. Her husband's name is Wendell Mucho Moss. Mm-hmm. Like, and she's had enough of him. I mean, yeah. he, and he's like a masculine, macho figure. And then, you know, there's Kotex, and then there's Mr. Driblet, and the Flopian. And Genghis Cohen mm-hmm. and Emery Botts. I mean, she, he comes up with like the weirdest. Diocletian Blob. Dr. Diocletian Blob is a character whose memoir she finds at one point. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like. And they're like, the the person who writes the play, his name is Warfinger. I mean, it, Richard it, Warfinger. And then, like, they kind of have like a lot, like, and then he has the characters sort of fill these very weird, kind of like Dr. Strange Love kind of. Things like you have, you know, the therapist who goes crazy, and the crazy person has to help him. And he also and- turns out to be a Nazi. Nazis come up a bunch in this. Doctor Hilarious turns out to have been a Nazi at one point. She let, talks. To let him. me finish the. Oh, what I was saying, and then you know, there's the he. She goes to a bar that's a known pickup bar, and she meets a group of people who belong to a society where their goal is to stop people from falling in love. And then they sort they call, they form this whatever she in a more in a morate in a morate anonymous anonymous. So then they have that, and then there's the what the engineering bar where the, it's like a karaoke bar, but they're all engineers from this company called Yo-Yo Dine, which the is scope, which is some kind of like weird like engineering. Your defense contractor. Yeah, so there's always that sort of weird. You know, corporate entity that is doing weird things that you don't know about. And then there's the scientist who wants to build that, the what's called the Maxwell's Demon, which is actually like a real engineering, theoretical engineering. It's a thought experiment. A thought experiment. And he's going to build one. And she starts meeting all these sort of weird, chaotic, fractured people. And then from that, she's supposed to decide what's the mystery. I think a lot of it is about, like, ideology. It's this, I think the novel raises this idea that, like, the world is inherently chaotic and meaningless, and you use an ideology, be it scientific, political, or religious, to conform the world into a shape that is more easy to understand. But if you don't have anything to confirm your ideology, then you lose grasp on it. So we see, like, um, she meets an anarchist, taco, taqueria owner... And he his worldview is confirmed by the existence of the like her super capitalist ex lover Inverarity Pierce, the guy who died. Um, 
and then that guy's able to live comfortably in the world because his ideology is confirmed by the existence of this guy. But then we see, as a counterpoint to that, Dr. Hilarious, the, the, the devoted Freudian, doesn't have anything to confirm his ideology and becomes unmoored from reality and convinced that the Israelis are coming to kill him and causes a hostage crisis in his own hospital. And then we see Oedipa doesn't have an ideology, and I think in a way that Tristero is supposed to be that. Like, she's developing this conspiracy theory, but she doesn't have... She never finds the piece that confirms it, so she just ends up feeling even more lost and alone than she was before. We also see Mike Fallopian, who's like this weird right-wing... Like, it's a parody of... An obvious parody of the John Birch Society, where he's like part of this far-right society that is devoted to this dude named Richard Pinguid, who was the first American to fight the Russians... And, like, even though his worldview, increasingly, as he espouses it, makes less and less sense, the fact that he has this, like, strong central figure to base it around allows him to, like, internalize all of these contradictions in a way that lets him keep going. And, like, he's one of the few people that she meets in the course of her investigation who isn't destroyed. I kind of got the impression that maybe the whole point of Inveretti embroiling her and as the executive i think it's also a very pinching thing to like give someone a bureaucratic job mm-hmm. when they're in the midst of this sort of hedonistic crazy world this person has like a bureaucratic job that they have to do so she's the executor i kind of got the impression that it's almost like like this whole entire novel what he does to her by making her be the executor and with these forged postage stamps is he's playing a joke on her and in essence Pynchon is trying to make you think that the whole novel is a joke that's being played on the reader it's a very sort of strange circular pattern of the way that this novel is set out where there's like there's a like a level of chaos and then there's someone trying to rein in the chaos and as that person reigns in the chaos more chaos ensues so it's kind of like it makes me think of like a Benny Hill novel where, uh, you know, if that Benny Hill was a novel, like there's lots of people running around doing wacky things, you know, and there's music playing and this poor woman is trying to like actually do something. But in, at the same time, she's embroiled in this sort of chaotic world where she's making things worse. She starts having an affair with the lawyer. She goes on this tangent of where she's reading this play and she goes to Berkeley to talk to this publisher. And then she goes, to the, talk to that scientist about the Maxwell's demon. None of this really is helping her figure out what to do with this will. And then at one point, which is the most strangest part that I really can't understand, is her husband has like an existential crisis at the radio station. And then she ends up dealing with him and his existential crisis. And then, But the whole time she doesn't really want to deal with him because she went. she decided she had to go on this executor business Mm -hmm. trip to get away from her husband because she was bored with him yeah Uh, well i think like the thing with the husband is it raises this idea that like in the lead up to that section she's driving back to her hometown or you know the place that she started from and she raises this idea that like the tristero is terrifying and she doesn't know why and then in the course of that the next sequence she reunites with with mucho and Mucho has been taking LSD and has had this sort of uh, psychedelic revelation 
that like we're all connected and he he has this idea that like by using the same words we become the same people like when you say rich chocolatey goodness you're the same person as anyone else who's ever will or ever did say rich chocolatey goodness this sounds a lot like your favorite writer oh Wait, are we talking about Borges? Yes. Yeah, yeah. If you quote Shakespeare, you are Shakespeare. And if you say rich chocolatey goodness, you are everyone else. But, but then she, like, hates this idea. And then it raises this possibility that, like, is the reason that she's afraid of the Tristero be- just because... Not because of all of the obviously scary stuff, like the conspiracy and the masked black riders who come in the night to kill you. Is she just afraid of it because it is a communication system and she's terrified of the idea of connecting with other people? Well, I mean, there's things that Pynchon loves. He loves wacky bureaucracy, we know that. He loves weirdo, eccentric characters. He loves, like, the medical uses of LSD, secret societies, stories within stories, like the play that's in the book, and then science and engineering conundrums, which is another weird thing that he seems to be obsessed with. And every, he's, like, crammed everything that he is interested in in this novella. And it's, like, it's too full. It's too chalked up. I guess, like, Gravity's Rainbow works because it's a longer novel. True. And you don't get, like, this highly concentrated, like, dose of, like, weirdness that you can't really sort of process. There's too many characters. They interact too quickly. The mystery that should be, like, longer and drawn out is kind of compressed and then this whole complicated story about the play that's a play based on a play that's based on a story that has to do with these bones that were boiled and became ink and then the ink yeah there's also stuff that feels like i mean i don't i don't think the mystery is really the point and it doesn't really i like i don't care that it's compressed or unsatisfying or whatever But there's lots of stuff that feels like it's just kind of, like, dropped. Like, there's all this stuff about Inverarity's holdings and, like, he owns this, like, artificial lake and he owns this company that makes bone-filtered cigarettes. And, like, after a while, it just kind of stops mattering. Like, Like, it feels like it's building to something about, like, who he was or what he was doing or how all these companies are connected or some kind of conspiracy involving his holdings. And then she just becomes so bogged down in the Tristero that all of that stops mattering. And it only really gets brought up again at the very end when she realizes that, like, the bookstore where she gets the book that has the play in it is, like, and a couple other, and the theater. Like, she starts to realize that at some point that all of the places that she's been going are owned by Inverarity's, like, company, or they're, like, places that he owns directly. And that's where she starts to develop this idea that he he embroiled her in this conspiracy and maybe made it all up. Um, I, the question I have for you, is this a parody? Is this a mystery? No. No and no. It just, it seems to me that, like, as an example of post, uh, it's supposed to be an exemplary example of postmodern fiction. Yeah. The fact that it there are unresolved plot points are excused under the term of that's so postmodern, like you never really get that resolution. Yeah. 
that you would expect from a, just, you know, a modernist novel. And I kind of feel like what's lacking in, in the sort of finishing the, you know, the finesse that you see in later Pynchon novels, that's sort of excused as like, it's so wacky, you know, he can't resolve 27 characters and their plot points because it's a short postmodern novel. That's just how postmodernism, it sort of twinkles out and then you're just left with like well, a confusing I, ending. A lot of postmodernism is like an object, is like a rejection of like, these sort of enlightenment ideas of like objective reality and knowledge and like I think the idea of a satisfying narrative is kind of rooted in an idea of objective reality where it's like ah there are facts and figures and they can all be aligned together and you can like reach this conclusion so I mean I think I kind of appreciate him not Trying to tie it all together. I mean, I don't. I think it would have made less sense if everything ended up being tied together at the end. But I think even though he rejects some of the literary devices that make up a traditional novel, he embraces other parts of it, which makes it sort of fragmented to me. So yes, he rejects all you know the tying up or the resolution, but then he also has these like character studies, which is another traditional literary device that he puts in there. He spends a lot of time talking about like the paranoids and their backstory and then making all these sort of heavy handed like contemporary references to like Nabokov and the Beatles and, you know, his his thoughts and views on contemporary music versus jazz, his like concerned about like using LSD to make yourself more self-aware. And it's kind of like he's kind of saying like if you're an uptight kind of perfectionist who loves science and technology like myself, LSD can really help you, you know, expand your mind. Is he saying that? Or is he saying that the people who think that they are tapped into some greater consciousness on LSD are fucking deluding themselves and they're just as bad as the dude who thinks he's built Maxwell's demon? I, th- I think it's almost sort of the same thing. I mean, he might not be saying me, myself, as Thomas Pynchon taking mm-hmm. LSD is going to expand my mind. But, like, the scientists who and people who work at Yo-Yo Dine and they have that group where they, you know, they drink a lot and do drugs and then they have, like, a karaoke. That's sort of a version of them, like, expanding their self-awareness mm-hmm. but still remaining, like, scientists and engineers. Sure. What do you think that this book is about like fundamentally like what I mean, is, I think if you had to sum it up in one word what is this book about grief grief like see i it's the we're watching we're we're watching oedipus mourning process because at no point is she does she mourn in verity or like appear to be sad about him but then his death causes this complete unraveling of like her worldview and her sense of self like we see that over the course of the novel, like her sense of personhood and being just like dissolves to the point where like it's unclear. Anna is not ever really given like a strong visual description, but I think there's a way to read this novel where it's like she everyone just sees her differently. No one can tell how old she's supposed to be. Like It, it eventually reaches the point where a dude is convinced that she's a man named Arnold Schlarb. Because she had like a name tag on or something. 
and then it's like she's constantly seeing these signs of the Tristero and grappling with the idea that the Tristero might be death and having to like come to terms with her own morality. Like I, I think this is like this is a novel about like the way that grief just like fucks you up and changes you. See, I I thought the book was about revenge. Okay. You know, like Inverti wants to get revenge on Moss for leaving him and leaving him in a sort of lurch, like emotionally. And then the whole story about the underground male systems, they're also about revenge. Like mm-hmm. they're trying to like restore this fight. And then I mean, what I mean, the weird part about the Corp, the CEO who gets fired and like he's upset and then he starts this movement about you know helping people not fall in love and then the play is about revenge and mm-hmm. she's she takes off and abandons her husband as a way to sort of get revenge on him for the way that he is behaving it's it, I don't know it's it's completely unresolved but I kind of felt the she didn't really care about him her ex-lover no but that's the thing she's not she won't admit that she cared about him but like this is like the 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 the, her grieving process is turned into the narrative so she never has to be like i'm sad about inferiority we just see the evidence of it this dude like to the outside observer who doesn't have insight into oedipus internal monologue or point of view what we see is someone she knew died and then she has a mental breakdown and leaves her husband and lives in this city and loses her identity. And it's like, yeah, that is someone who is having a hard time grieving. I don't know. I kind of feel like maybe... She doesn't grieve in the novel because the novel is her grieving. Yeah, that seems like a postmodernist thing to say. I feel like Thomas Pynchon's brain works differently than like most of us like maybe for like me it seems weird but maybe like i mean your brain works differently than mine so maybe like pension is not as crazy as i i, I, I think know. he is i think it's interesting that after he writes this he goes on to write gravity's rainbow which he publishes in 1973 which is up until this point What's considered his most iconic work. Yeah. I mean, that's the novel that's on all the best literature of the 20th century lists and all these different things. And I feel like as much as The Crying of Lot 49 is compressed, the Gravity's Rainbow is expanded. And I think that Gravity's Rainbow works better, like I said before, because it allows Pynchon the space to develop these like large amount of characters to sort of give context to the theories that he's constantly writing about, like society and engineering and technology and the role of like those kinds of things on the way that people behave. I mean, Gravity's Rainbow has a lot of weird offsparts of vignettes of like almost short stories that are woven into the story. But I feel like, Overall, it's more successful than this novel because it has the, like, space that it needs to expand. 
I don't okay. know, maybe like Gravity's Rainbow was the crying blot 49 on its medical LSD trip. I don't know. I didn't think this this novel is unsuccessful. I don't I don't Oh I, no, it's not unsuccessful. But what I think it is, it's kind of like a lot of the like I think I think that Thomas Pynchon novels suffer a lot from um a lack of a good editor. And I think a lot of what happens in this novel that might actually be like problems with the writing process are excused by saying it's a postmodern, you know, example of, you know, a classic, you know, novel or whatever. Um, I guess. I don't know. I mean, like, what, like... I don't know. That feels like that ends up just being a rejection of the idea of postmodernism in general. Like, I don't think so because I think when if you look at Pynchon and the novelists that are inspired by Pynchon, you see a lot of really successful postmodern literature. I mean, like if you think like when I was reading this, one of the things that I kept thinking about, and then we talked about this earlier, is Madison Smart Bell and his second novel, Waiting for the End of the World, mm-hmm. which he ends up writing, what, in mid-80s, 1985, maybe? And that's sort of, a lot of what happens in that novel, you can see, is directly influenced by the style and the thematic format of The Crying of Lot 49. Mm-hmm. And then other writers, like Richard Powers, who he himself says that he is inspired a lot by Pynchon. He goes on, I mean, he wrote The Echo Maker. I think I talked about this as National Book Award novel. It's a very hard novel to read about a man who suffers an accident. And because of this accident, he can't recognize his sister's face. He thinks his sister is, someone had taken away his sister and replaced his sister with someone else. And it causes this like internal mystery that he's trying to solve while dealing with his illness. And then just recently, Richard Powers wrote, I think I talked about this on another podcast, his new novel, The Overstory, which is this very long, elaborate novel of interconnecting stories that have to deal with the trees and environment mm-hmm. and people. And I think that's a very sort of pinchiness style where there's a lot of characters. And even the trees themselves are characters. There's different um, special trees that are in each of the stories that become important to the people and to the and to the novel, and I feel like his Pynchon style of sort of making these sort of bubbles and connecting these bubbles to create this larger novel becomes sort of iconic in the postmodern novel. In my mind, even though he's still writing, and in fact, one of my favorite novels is Inherit Vice, which was published in 2009. I think that's my favorite Pynchon novel. I still think of Pynchon as, like, very much of the late 60s, early 70s cultural scene. Mm-hmm. Which I think is kind of make... Well, I don't know why that... Maybe that makes it harder for me to think of him as, like, a living novelist, a novelist that's still working. Sure, sure. Um, do you think that Thomas Pynchon thinks he's funny? I... Th- <laughs> yes. Because like, I think that some of this is some of the uh, some of this story is genuinely funny. A lot of it is not funny at all, and I'm not sure. Like, is Mike Fallopian supposed to be funny? I, like see, that name, the Richard Penguin Society, like bit is very funny. I think that Pynchon is funny, but I think sometimes he 
gets caught up in his own like cerebral concept of what he thinks is funny and he's sort of heavy handed. I think the same thing of like if he was more subtle with the paranoias, like that would have been hilarious. But he's very heavy handed about making it known that they're supposed to be like the Beatles. And then there's that whole thing about, you know, when with the story about the Nabokov reference. I mean, it's very heavy handed and not subtle. But things like the, his other jokes are more subtle. So I think when he thinks he's, when he's really trying hard to be funny, it sort of feels like you want to groan. It's almost like an adult, like a dad joke. Yeah, but then I'm of two minds about it. Because like you said, like, yeah, the, the other more subtle jokes in the book are genuinely funny. And then it's like, I, I do feel that there are parts of this that are deliberately unsubtle to try and, like, goad you into looking for a deeper meaning that's not there. And some of those are the things that are read as unfunny jokes, like but do you, Mike Fallopian and Genghis Cohen. But do you feel like sometimes he's like, it's almost like Ronnie Dangerfield, he's like, the Beatles, am I right? Like, kind of like making some kind of, like, He's trying to be, like, observational and current. Yeah, but I can't tell if that's, like... That's purposeful? That's the thing. I, you never know with Pynchon. And I yeah. think that's kind of, like... That's his, like, the beauty of his work. And also, like, the confusion of his work. But there's, like... This is a weird comparison. The Eric Andre show is very... I think very... Well, genuinely one of the funniest shows on television. But there's a thing with the character that Eric Andre portrays where the character is funny and the show is funny, but... The character is supposed to be bad at comedy. Like, so he'll do, like, a monologue, and the joke of the monologue is that it's really unfunny. And I can't tell if the Mike Fallopian and Stanley Kotex jokes are supposed to be deliberately unfunny. I think they are... You're supposed to be like, oh, fuck off, Pynchon, in those parts. And then, like, he actually gets you with the whole weird thing about... Like, this dude is so right-wing that he ends up accidentally rejecting capitalism. See, I kind of, I I, I look at it two ways. One, is it like Monty Python where Mm -hmm. they're so hyper-self-aware that the joke is meant to, like you said, it's meant to be unfunny because it's, it's too bombastic. Yeah. But then also there's the part where maybe just he doesn't realize. I kind of got the thing about this, like, whole sort of, the character, her name being Oedipo, which is a female version of Oedipus, and then the fallopian, and then the Kotex, and then the whole, like, anti-love society that meets at a, a singles bar that's hosting a meeting of polyamorous people. I kind of felt like that was maybe sort of a reaction to, like, the feminist movement. Maybe. I mean, there really isn't a ton about, like... Well, one, it's weird that her name is Oedipa. And I think this is another intentional, like, sort of joke. Her name is Oedipa, and literally at no point in the novel do her parents ever come up. I don't think they do, at least. No. No. She doesn't have kids or anything. There's, like, really nothing about parents. Like, I think the Oedipa thing is just there as, like, a false flag for the the Freudians. As a goof on people who try to do Freudian readings of texts. And I think in a way, the, like, Mike Fallopian, Peter Pingwood stuff is maybe there to taunt people who have, like, Marxist readings of texts. Like, I think maybe part of why I... I definitely seems like I like this book more than you do. And I think maybe part of the reason I like it is because I was an English major. 
I went to school and studied literary criticism for three years, and I fucking hated it. And this book seems to fucking hate it as well. I'll tell you one of the reasons. I, I don't dislike this book. No, I don't think and I, I did, you And I didn't it. not dislike Gravity Rainbow. The thing that gets me about Thomas Pynchon is he would be... He would be better if Saul Bellows did not exist. Like, you know that Saul Bellows can write a better picaresque novel that has observations about, at the time that he's writing, contemporary society and the trends that's going on, and is funny and more cerebral than Thomas Pinch. Do you think it's Saul Bellows and not Kurt Vonnegut? Because I feel like, in a way, I like Thomas Pynchon, but in a way, he I feel like he's kind of... Less funny Kurt Vonnegut and also more boring Philip K. Dick at the same time. Yeah, I, I could see that. I could see if you could take the two of them and put them together and then also you wanted a novel that was 900 pages long. You would need all three of them to write that novel together. Sure. But I mean, there's like a lot of that, like, like all the weird, all the stuff with um, Mucho... After his LSD revelation, there is a kind of a Borges quality to to it, but it also reminds me a lot of the like. Do you think that of Philip K. Dick and like his like sort of metaphysical like where like Gnostic sort of stuff that he gets into, and then like the the idea of this like secret ancient conspiracy that maybe wasn't real or was real and then stopped being real and is real again. It feels very like I. Very Philip K. Dick to me. Like I feel like there's a lot of overlap between We Await Silent Tristero's Empire and The Empire Never Ended. I kind of got... I mean, is that whole thing about the LSD just like... A also, giant... Gnosticism literally comes up in this. Yeah. But is that whole thing with the like LSD and like the experimentation, is that like pretty much just like a giant like fuck you to Kurt Vonnegut? Maybe. Because like, do you get the impression that Pynchon's like... A science nerd who wants to be, like, an artsy theater guy like Kurt Vonnegut and is just not, like, as comfortable with his own, like, self-awareness to do that. I don't like, know. Kurt Vonnegut is so free. You know, he's kind of, like, he's, like, on a whole different, like, literary plane than Pynchon. He's, like, you know, his writing is so, like, free and, like, refreshing. And, like, Thomas Pynchon sort of gets... It's kind of stilted and kind of like bogged down. He's like Neil Stevenson. Like, you know, he he's writing a novel about this wacky people. And then he goes into the, like this detail about the 1600s and the, you know, Renaissance mail delivery. Like, but Kurt Vonnegut's like, who cares about that? Like, let's, you know, let's yeah. have some fun. Let's take like a I, stodginess out of writing and put like fun, modern, avant-garde things in there and, and mix science fiction and literature and everything else together. I, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, Kurt Vonnegut is a better writer than Thomas Pynchon. I'll, I'll just, I'm not uncomfortable saying that. Do you think that Thomas Pynchon gets burned every day when he thinks about that? <laughs> I don't know. We, maybe. Um, what was I going to say? He's definitely mad about Nabokov. Uh, maybe? Unclear. He has some feelings about Nabokov, but I'm not sure what they are. I don't know if he's mad. I think he's mad about the success of other writers, especially writers that he may think that he's better than. I don't. I don't know if that that's it. But there's like, I mean, okay. So there's the the thing with 
there's this very weird offhand reference, and it comes up a couple times that like Mucho has a thing for like seventeen year olds, and then the one of the dude Metzger, the lawyer that she has an affair with. Leaves with one of the paranoid's girlfriends, who is like supposed to be like sixteen or seventeen, and then the paranoid writes a sad song where he calls out all these Humbert Humbert assholes. And right, I, and that's the it's like sort a, of... a, obviously a very deliberate Nabokov reference, and it's a continual Nabokov reference. But I don't, I don't know what the point is there, unless it is there just to be like, haha, you thought there were literary illusions in this, dummy. There's not that's so what they don't mean anything and then if that's the case that's fine otherwise I have no clue what those references are there to serve because it's not like I think the only thing I can think of is yes there's that sort of weird unresolved not quite literary figured out if Pynchon had a problem with Nabokov because he had we talked about this both he and Kurt Vonnegut had attended Columbia and both. Possibly at the same time, or not at the same time, but at one point in each of their careers had taken the literature course that Nabokov had taught. But I think that, like, in sort of the pop culture time that he's writing The Crying of the Lot 49, is the time when Stanley Kubrick makes the Lolita movie. I think that was in the 70s. I think that came out in the 60s. But anyway, I think what, like, he's trying to tap into that sort of trend. He's talking about, like, the, like, the word, the, oh, yeah, you're right. the word, like, the use of the word nymphette and kind of, like, that, like, Lolita sort of exposed mainstream to a lot of, like, the seedy side of, like, you know, sexual predilections that may not have been, you know, main culture might not have been exposed to. Because even if you didn't read Lolita, which was a very controversial book at the time, most of the people saw the movie because Kubrick had a good reputation. Yeah. So, and like the kind of the Huber Huber and the like use of like nymphed and the sort of sexualization of, of teenagers kind of like hits like a critical mass point in the late, like late 50s, early 60s, which is like almost near the time that like Pynchon is writing the novel and I think like his references to Nabokov and also his like references to like this whole like phenomena of like the the Beatles and the like rise of like pop fandom and this sort of obsession with like these you know bands like that you know which I guess is like a teenage thing you know you're going back to the 50s where teenager becomes like a known entity and then in the 60s teen culture becomes like a huge thing so i think like maybe i have no idea if that's yeah i mean the only thing i could think of is like maybe he's like he's got like three characters who express an interest in underage girls and also there's this weird nymphette nymph like thing with the sign at the hotel and i could see if maybe he's like uh this is just they're just creepy dudes. They're not. They're commonplace. Here's three of them in this one novel. You, they, it's not whatever Nabokov was writing about is not anything special. What's actually special is this mystery postal service that might not exist. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the other thing I was going to ask you is, do you think I know you were like, oh, this should have more space to like breathe 
and to explore these ideas and flesh out these characters. But one of the things that I was thinking was that, like, do you think this story could have been improved if he just cut it down to just the chapter about Oedipus seeing the play? No. If it was, like, a Borges story where it was just... A character's reaction to a play that doesn't exist. No. I, I, if anything, it should be 400 pages longer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I feel like. I feel like he should have got the full Neil Stevenson. He it should be 900 pages long, and it should go in excruciating detail. And I want to know more about the weirdo that makes the Maxwell's demon. And... You know, I want John Nefastus, which is another like taunting, like it's, oh, here's a here's one stray religious reference. Its name sounds like John the Baptist. Don't you want to pour over the text to figure out why that's the case? Or maybe I just did it because it was funny. But I kind of feel like, yeah, I feel like it, it could have been a lot more bombastic. It really could have, and I think that's what he's like when he writes Gravity's Rainbow. He's like, I'm gonna notch it up a lot you know i'm gonna i'm gonna really go like mm-hmm. i'm gonna do the whole world war i'm gonna put a lot of stuff in here i mean the world... take that kurt vonnegut sure and the, what do you think is going on with the nazi stuff speaking of the world war because there's dodger hilarious turns out to be a nazi doctor whose job was to drive people insane in the concentration camps and then there's this whole sequence where uh she goes to a the the bookstore burns down and she goes to the government surplus store next door and the guy is uh, selling swastika armbands to, like, white supremacist militias. I feel like... Is it just another example of, like, an ideology that defines someone's worldview but is ultimately meaningless? Or is it just... Or is there something else going on there that I'm not I picking up on? that the Nazis are, like, the really... They're, like... The Nazis in the 60s and 70s literature is almost the same as the big faceless corporation in the 70s and 80s literature. I think mm-hmm. it's just something that can be vilified. I guess. And I think also, like, like being, like, calling people a Nazi or implying they're Nazis implies that they're, like, straight-laced. And, like, in the 60s and the 70s, being, like, straight-laced is a really bad insult. Okay. So, sure, like, sure. you can, you know, if you compare the people that the Army Navy store is selling those uniforms to, to the sort of free, loving, hedonistic group, like the paranoids, you know, it's kind of like two different sides of like the counterculture that's coming out. There's the counterculture that embraces this sort of weird, hedonistic lifestyle, and then you have the reactionary group that's on the flip side, mm-hmm. which is the sort of straight laced group okay it's kind of like the like you know thomas wolf and his like you know stockbrokers you know versus like you know the people who are like indulging in that lsd acid culture that he you know is so fond of so we, we talked like a somewhat about the courier's tragedy that's the play within the play but what about the movie what about cashiered I thought, see, I thought that the the play, and it's referred to, like, in the literature as, like, a Jacobian revenge play. Yeah. And I feel like the movie is the modern version of that sort of traditional play style. I mean, the movie, like, 
The play is very clearly, I think, supposed to be, in some ways, a reflection of what's happening with Oedipa, because there's this whole thing where... The reason I was like, oh, maybe they could, he could have cut it down to just the play story, is he kind of encompasses the whole idea of this conspiracy in this one moment in the play where people just they stop referring to something by its name, and it's like... It's like a joke you don't get because you don't know the right information. Everyone in the play is acting like you should know and they don't need to say it. But then you have no way of learning it because they won't tell you. And so Tristero is the thing that they're dancing around actually referring to. But you see the evidence of it throughout. And then until they finally say the name in one of the last lines of the play. But I I don't know what's going on with the movie. Because the movie is like, it's about a guy who gets court-martialed and then builds like his own sub to covertly fight the turks and then him and his son and their dog all die tragically in the submarine well that, i think that's that part i think is the it's sort of it makes a nod back to that whole story that he tells in the beginning about the man who during the Civil War, goes to California. You know, I think it's kind of linked that way. But what I was thinking is, if the play is about self, if the book is about self-discovery and Oedipa is on this journey and she's going through these process of looking at different types of things that could lead her to self-discovery, some of the stuff she just outright rejects. And I think that the play and the movie are sort of, meant to be, like, absorbed and then just immediately rejected. I mean, I guess the movie also kind of gets at this idea of, like, the, like, non-traditional unsatisfying ending, where it's like, she's convinced... I mean, she she does end up betting that they don't make it out alive, but she's convinced in the beginning that, like, oh, the way these stories work is that there's a happy ending. And she sees, like, when they're leaving, she sees the characters leaving again in the submarine... She's like, oh, the dad is going to marry this character, and the son is going to marry this character, and there's even a girl dog for the dog. And then they just horrifically die in the submarine, and it's really dark and grotesque and unsatisfying. But isn't there a part in the in the book where one of the characters tells a story about a civil war? That's the Peter Penguin Society. Right, and I think like that the, that story with the in the Penguin Society is sort of mirrored in this movie that they're watching. And then also it's, like, weird. Like, they're watching the movie as they're, like, having this complicated, like, sexual encounter. Yeah, she puts on a bunch of clothes. Yes! And breaks the mirror. And then... she can't see her own reflection. They have to have sex in the closet, and he ends up putting his feet in the drawer. Mm -hmm. And and then, like, the paranoids are, like, serenading them about this sort of, like, I guess parody of she loves you it's it seems like like the most absurd like romantic interlude that you can have in a novel i mean until you get to like david foster wallace and then they're all no one can have a normal sexual relationship in a postmodern novel yeah and then she ends up he ends up running away with the younger woman anyway Mm -hmm. there's also this whole weird thing where he's I mean, everyone is so uptight, right, and so highly strung, but they're also, like, sexually adventurous. It just seems like nobody really cares what other people are doing. They, but yet they spend... They're very like, concerned with what they're, they, they are doing. But that's the thing, right? Like, she meets all these weird characters with all these weird obsessions, 
And it's not hard to imagine, like, her over the course of the novel. Like, she becomes one of those characters. Like, you can imagine a similar story to this where it's like, oh, yeah, I met this lady who's obsessed with some kind of secret mail system. That Remember that weird character? And it's like, she becomes no different than, like, Mike Fallopian and that unnamed guy who doesn't want people to fall in love. Like, everybody's got this weird obsession, and now she has a weird obsession. And it's like, even Mucho has it in the beginning, like... Mucho's the guy, the weird guy who's terrified, who has, like, PTSD from working in a car dealership. But then how about how the book actually ends? The story actually ends? She, it ends with, there's going to be, she's waiting around in the auction house to see if the person, if a representative from Tristero is going to come and buy the forged stamps that are maybe Tristero stamps. And then that we don't... That's just It just ends. Like, the person doesn't show up yet when the novel ends. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but, I mean, she starts, like... She gets sad and almost starts crying. So you think, like, oh, she's crying about the Lot 49. And then you realize, mm-hmm. oh, no. The crying of Lot 49 is the sale of Lot 49. These, like, stamps. Yeah. But, like... Ha- like... That's almost... This is what... <laughs> or she's crying because she's finally reaching the final stage of grief. Which is acceptance. Justera doesn't exist, or if it exists, it doesn't matter. This is a terrible... Inverity is dead, and he didn't leave any weird legacy behind. He's just a rich guy who's dead now. It's a terrible mystery. Yeah, but I mean, that's sort of the point. <laughs> it, it's, the, it's a terrible mystery, because I think maybe Thomas Pynchon just hates mysteries. I think he hates a lot of stuff. You know? But it's like, what even is like, what even is the satisfying conclusion to this mystery? Because she even talks about that. She's like, okay, what if I did find out proof that Tristero exists? What next? What then? Because you don't solve nothing. You don't solve a mystery by going to San Francisco and immediately taking up a sexual relationship with this weird lawyer, and then going to a play. Like that's mm-hmm. not how mysteries are solved. That's not how mail systems work. That's not how. <laughs> corporations work that's not how like theoretical thermodynamic experiments work it's like not how any of this works yeah but it's almost like a rejection of the idea of like endings and solutions and mysteries because it's like yeah okay you solve the mystery you figured out what the hound of the baskervilles is now what do you do what does that mean what does that why does that even matter but i think for people who like mysteries that conclusion of solving even if the mystery, the solving of the mystery is there's no mystery. Yeah. Which happens a lot in modern mysteries. But I feel like this is sort of, to say that this is a mystery is kind of. It's not, a, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's a, it's not a mystery. That's like saying like Infinite Jest is a sports book. Infinite Jest is a sports book. Is it? It's more of a sports book than this is a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like if you want to read a novel that's like this, but you want to have a more satisfying experience, you should read, like, a Tom Robbins novel. Like, you'll feel, like, more entertained, and you'll feel not as, like, dumb, maybe, like, less intellectual than you feel after you read a Pynchon novel. I think the actual thing is, if you are, if this story is interesting, if some of the ideas in the story is interesting, and it is, you do want to read something that's a little bit, less hostile to the reader then you should read pattern recognition by william gibson which gets at a lot of this it it does do the thing where it's like okay here's what the conspiracy actually is 
but it also gets at this idea of like the conspiracy some conspiracies are not real and like because there's sort of two mysteries at work in that book which one is like who or i guess there's three there's there's who is the the filmmaker distributing this mysterious film online who are the people that are after the protagonist and why and what happened to her dad and two of those get reasonably satisfying conclusions and one of them the whole point is there is no satisfying conclusion to that so i think that's like a little bit of a you know there's a little bit of sugar to help that medicine go down i think i think that's not present in this when i think about sort of like the genesis of like weirdo avant-garde modern postmodern fiction i think about like writers like william s burroughs and i it's totally lost my mind the hunter s thompson and things like that and i feel like they're sort of the genesis i I would even push modernist up to them and i would say like if that's the sort of nut that like the tree that like thomas pynchon grows from then William Gibson takes that and refines it a little bit more. Sure, sure. So, I mean, the things that, like, the things that Pynchon is obsessed with, like, you know, big anonymous corporations and the effect of science and technology on culture, I think, like, Gibson does that a little bit more sophisticated in a way than Pynchon does at this point. But then also Pynchon is writing, like, 30 years before Gibson. So maybe like it's not as like gelled out like the, cause I, I'm, I was thinking like, you know, like, well, I mean, I think there's future a- shock. That's what I was thinking about. Like when did future shock come out and like, what kind of influence did like a book like future shock have on someone like Thomas Pynchon, as opposed to what effect it had on like William Gibson and the sort of technology writers that come after him. I know we talked multiple times about Stevenson, but that's like... Future Shock is from like 1970. I don't think it had much, if any, influence on Pynchon. I'm sure it's a huge influence on No, but what I was saying is, when Future Shock comes out, that clearly has an influence on these sort of... um, What's like a genre? Like the William Gibson genre. Cyberpunk? Yeah, like Future Shock has, even if it's not clearly defined... An influence on writers like William Gibson. But what I was saying is that because Pynchon predates Future Shock, his view of technology is not influenced by what comes in Future Shock, which talks about the dystopic future of humanity if it's dependent solely on technology. So I think like Pynchon is sort of getting started thinking about like science and technology and how it's going to impact art and literature in the future and i think that maybe that's what this movie is about maybe this movie is a reference to future art forms at compared to like jacobean revenge plays sure i think like the i think the the difference between thomas pynchon and william gibson which is a weird thing to talk about is actually pretty simple which i think is they are interested in a lot of the same same ideas information the way information is passed, these big corporations, and the effect they have on our lives. The difference is just that Thomas Pynchon does not have any materialist analysis. Like, he's way more interested in, like, metaphysics 
and like, oh, you know, your like internal like thoughts and feelings. Whereas William Gibson is much more interested in like, okay, but how does this actually affect the world we live in? Where Pynchon seems to reject the idea of like, there is no actual world. So why even bother? I think though, and you had talked about this before, if Kurt Vonnegut can meld literary literature and science fiction, mm-hmm. then I think Tom, Thomas Pynchon is like right at the point where he could also do that, but he pulls himself back and says, I don't want to be a science fiction writer. So I don't want yeah. to go even further into this high concept of, you know, like, you know, medically induced self-awareness because I don't want to get into that sort of weirdo limbo that Vonnegut gets in there where he mixes, you know, fiction and science fiction together in a sort of intellectual way. Like Thomas Pynchon is saying, whoa, I only want to be an intellectual writer. I don't want to be a mainstream writer. I don't want to be a pop writer. I don't want to be like on that weirdo fringe of like Hunter S. Thompson where I'm kind of talking about like drugs and counterculture. I want to observe counterculture, but I don't want to enmesh myself into it. Where Vonnegut like dives right in. Well, I mean, I think there's like a misanthropic streak in Pynchon where it's like, I can imagine Kilgore Trout as a character in a Thomas Pynchon novel. Like it's pretty easy down to the weird ass name. Um... But whereas, like, Kervonnegut identifies deeply with Kilgore Trout and possesses this, like, deep, almost, like, overwhelming sense of, like, compassion for him to the point where Breakfast of Champions ends up being a story centered around him as God appearing before Kilgore Trout and offering him this, like, moment of, like, sublime grace and releasing him from his service as a fictional character. If Kilgore Trout was a character in a Thomas Pynchon novel, he would be a disgusting creep that it would be obvious that Pynchon hates and we are supposed to find grotesque and pitiable. I think... Yeah. There are no characters in... There's one character in The Crying of La Forty-Nine that seems like Thomas Pynchon doesn't hate... And it's the anarchist taco shop owner who's, like, the only guy who seems to be treated with any, like, level of, like, respect. Who is portrayed as being, like, wise in any way. But if that character was in a Kurt Vonnegut novel, he would be a major character. Yeah, he'd be the guy the book is about. Yeah, not a side divergent. But I think that, like, when people think about postmodern fiction, it's, it's always this kind of thing, like, I don't get it. Or I don't understand it. They consider it, like, modern art. Where, like, I, you know, I can't... I. I can do that. Like anybody can do that. Like anybody can write a novel or, and, or, you know, on the flip side, I don't understand it. So then it's kind of like, when you think about like the writers that people always have, that are highly acclaimed, but a lot of people say they can't understand or they can't read. Mm-hmm. Like people say that about Thomas Pynchon. I don't blame anybody who says that. I think the thing is that like, I think a lot of the people who do say that about Thomas Pynchon, it's like, that's what he wants. Yeah. He got you. You fell for it. You thought it was something... You thought you you got tricked into thinking that there was something you weren't getting. When actually the whole point is you can't get it. Because there's nothing to get. At least that's the way the writing of Laugh 9 reads to me. Like, it, it's like one of those, um... You know those traps for raccoons? Where it's like a cone with something in it. And the point is they reach their hand inside the cone to grab the thing. And then they can't get their hand out because they won't let go once they've got it. 
It's like that for literary critics. That's what The Crying of Lot 49 is. The problem is we, we didn't like eject them into the moon, into space after they all got stuck inside it. <laughs> that makes sense. But that's like what it is. Like the story is a, it, the book is a story about like how the search for meaning like pulls you in and you can become trapped and like Oedipa is not able to escape the gravity of the Tristero conspiracy, whether or not Tristero even exists. And is destroyed by it. And then in my, my reading, it's like, well, what it actually is is she's not able to escape the, the gravity of her grief. Yeah. But, yeah. I don't know. Um, it's definitely... I mean, I don't think people should feel like I don't get it or I'm not going to be able to get it and not experience reading a Pynchon novel. I think it's worth the sort of emotional and intellectual investment that it takes to read something like Gravity's Rainbow. Sure. But I think it's sort of, ultimately, everyone will get something out of it. I don't think the purpose... I mean, we talked about, like, James Joyce and Ulysses and, you know, how people are like, oh, that's the most complicated novel of all time and it's very hard to read. And I feel like if you just read it and then... Just same thing with modern art. You look at it, you read it, you take what you get from it and then what you get is your own personal experience. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's... I mean, it's accessible to anyone who wants to read it. Sure, sure. Like you, you really do not need to put on your smarty pants to read this novel because basically it's just like a literary Benny Hill episode. Mm-hmm. It's also a CIA psyop to strike out against Russia in a sort of protracted cultural cold war what do you think is the most difficult novel that you've read the most difficult novel that i've read well i don't know i don't understand why ulysses is the the one that's like this is the hardest book this book's so hard to read and everyone tries to read it and they can't read it when it's like the same dude wrote finnegan's wake and which i think portrait is portrait of a young man well, portrait of the artist is a young man it's fine i think finnegan's wake is far more impenetrable than or or harder to to pro, to like decode than Ulysses is. Ulysses is a relatively straightforward story that's just sort of told in a weird way. Finnegan's Wake is like almost written in another language. Yeah, and I think that like I think if you unpack his writing as just basically like fine examples of stream of consciousness. I mean, people read Faulkner yeah. and have no problem. Like, okay, Faulkner's a little bit weird. His stream of consciousness is a little more sophisticated than Ulysses. But I feel like if you break it down into sort of that basic concept of this is a stream of consciousness novel, then it's easy to understand. People read Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, what's more stream of consciousness than the oh. shit that came out of his brain? I mean, I think his stuff is fairly straightforward. It's just that he's... He's, you know, he's got a very uh, particular linguistics to him. I, I don't, I don't really think that there's a lot of like, I don't think, I don't, I have a hard time imagining anybody's reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and being like, what is this guy on about? It's like, <laughs> yeah, no, he just tells you. He just does it in kind of a funny way. And I think that's more honest. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a more sophisticated way to present something to your readers my personal i think one of the most difficult books that i have ever read 
was Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Because it's just super racist? I just... <laughs> I'm just messing with I felt like his style is a lot more dry and intense. But I kind of... I had a hard time... Like, I kind of never could resolve the fact that Apocalypse Now is based on that What do you book. mean? It just seemed... I don't know. In, I mean, Apocalypse Now, it's not like Apocalypse Now is an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. It's just heavily inspired by it. I just felt like a lot of the concepts that Conrad was bringing out in Heart of Darkness was very hard for me. Maybe I just could not relate to it. Like, it did not relate to anything. And maybe I read it at the wrong time in my life. I don't know. But, I mean, I read Ulysses and I read Finnegan's Wake and I kind of... Once I understood the sort of devices that he was using in his style of writing, I felt like that was easy to understand. But, like, there are books that I read, like, for my reading list or books that I feel like would enrich my life if I read them that almost feel like a chore, you know, where I have to set, like, a reading limit or I have to read them in chunks or, you know, I have to sort of force myself to finish those novels. Not because I can't finish them because they're so boring and I don't like them, but that, like, the the act of reading them is so complicated that I have to sort of process them a, longer than I would, like, reading, like, a detective novel or something. And sometimes they're, like, really emotional or really, like, intellectually challenging to me. Yeah. And I felt like comrades. Because when I read The Secret Agent, like, I loved it. Like, I read it really quickly. I thought the flow was great. I thought it was really interesting. I recommend that to people that, you know, are looking to read something new and interesting. And I was kind of like, did one guy write both of these books? Okay, I'm just going to talk about The Heart of Darkness for a second. I don't like The Heart of Darkness, like, pretty much at all. I like Apocalypse Now as a movie. I feel like that takes what the stuff that might be good about Heart of Darkness and, like... Okay, here's my thing with Heart of Darkness. Conrad does realized he didn't like leaving his hometown. Tried to make that into this, like, big like intellectual like observation about the world and in the process took a real place where real people live who were struggling under brutal colonialist imperialist oppression and turned it into a metaphor for evil like i think it's hard to come away from heart of darkness with a read that's not joseph conrad thinks that Africa is the opposite of London and it is therefore evil. And it's like deeply uncritical of colonialism in a way that I find to be highly uncomfortable. And I don't think there's even really that much there that like, like you read a Lovecraft thing and you're like, yes, Lovecraft was afraid of black people and he like took his feelings and abstracted them and built a horror story around it. But it's like, you can still feel like fear of the unknown and of the like, of a world that you can't understand and that's fine. Whereas I feel like there's really not a lot of reads of heart of darkness. Like it's hard to read heart of darkness in a way that doesn't just boil down to I'm scared of places where I don't, that are not the place where I live. I think though, I think you're hundred percent right. And it sort of just kind of opened up this new awareness of Joseph Conrad. His whole, his novel Lord Jim is pretty much to say like when you leave home and try to expand your horizons, terrible things are going to happen. Yeah. On like one hand, I am sympathetic. I do love like the city I am from. I think Philadelphia is great. I mean, I think 
I, 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 in some ways, feel about Philadelphia the way that Conrad does about London. But it's also like I don't think other places on Earth are evil because they're not Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, and I think the reason Apocalypse Now works is because what Apocalypse Now does, I think, is instead of it takes what was Africa in the Heart of Darkness, and it doesn't change it to Vietnam; it changes it to war. War is the heart of darkness. That's the place you go where that fucks you up and you become like Kurtz. It doesn't matter that he is in the jungle. He could be anywhere as long as he's doing war in a place. And I think that that works much better than the story in Heart of Darkness. That makes sense. But I don't know what the most difficult novel I've ever read is. I tend to like... Like maybe it's Finnegan's Wake. Like Finnegan's Wake takes a lot of deciphering or a lot of... Work deciphering until you realize that maybe it's impossible to decipher and that trying to decipher it is pointless. Um, a lot of stuff that I think people traditionally say is, like, hard to read. And this is not me bragging, but it's, like, I think a lot of times when people are, like, some this is hard to read and hard to understand, they're just missing a joke. I think for you, though, like, for you, for someone to say this is really difficult and hard to understand, you you're, like... Challenge accepted. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that was a... I had a conversation recently with someone where I was like, when I read a review of an album, nothing makes me want to listen to it more than someone saying it's unlistenable. Well, also, you're... You have... You like to argue. Well, not argue. You like to debate. You like to talk about things from different points of view. Sure. So if somebody says, this is unreadable, then you're like... Well, here's 20 reasons why it's not unreadable. Yeah. So. I think, I don't know. I think I think it's like, I'm not trying to brag, like, ooh, I get everything. But I just think it's like, a lot of times, unless something is like genuinely incompetently written, it's just a big fucking mess. A lot of times when people are like, this thing's hard to read, it's because you're coming to it with some kind of preconceived notion about what it is or what novels should be, that this is challenging. And, like, that's cool. I'm, I like that. I've, I've never read something that, like, challenged me and been like, ugh. I'm always like, yeah, dope. So, I don't know. Like, I think the most challenging stuff I've had to read is stuff that's just bad. Or stuff that's, like, very clearly indirect and directly espousing a worldview or ideology that I find repellent. I thought you were going to say hatchet. Um, I mean, yeah, there's stuff like that that's like, Hatchet annoyed me when I was a kid. And there's stuff that I've read where it's been like, it's been like disturbing or or like really dark or something. And just like having to think about the things it's bringing up is like hard to do. Yeah. I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head. There's a book I had to read when I was like 12 where a kid accidentally kills his friend and hides the body. And that was hard for me to read just because I found the concept very upsetting. I, not that I couldn't read it, understand it, but one of the books that upset me the most that I had read was Naked Lunch. I was actually thinking about Naked Lunch when you brought that up. Because, if, but the thing with that I think with Naked Lunch is like, it's like, it's wearing its, it's like on its sleeve, right? Like Naked Lunch reads the way it reads on purpose because it's like, like if you go into Naked Lunch being like, oh, okay, this is like a portrait of like, the mind of somebody who is strung out on heroin. Yeah, and then I, I think it reads pretty easily I because think, you're not like trying to 
reorder it into a co- coherent narrative. I think the reason why Naked Lunch disturbed me, and it's kind of, this is like something that people who become readers go through. When you're a child and you're reading, a lot of times you're reading things that are specifically, I mean, it's a huge thing now to read towards people's age brackets. Sure. So when you're a child, you read things that are meant for children. And then when you go to high school, you start to read things that are considered um, classics or important works for young adults. So you sort of, you're conditioned to read something like that. And the way, when I was little... And the, way, the things that we read were mostly classics or variations of classics. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot of like, especially growing up in a Catholic, going to a Catholic school and then, you know, reading certain, there was a lot of restrictions on what you could and couldn't read or you couldn't get access to. So, and then at home, we were like exposed to like, you know, the treasury of classic work. So, so when we were little, we read things like, you know, synopsises of Shakespeare's plays and Treasure Island and exposure to like classics like that. So when I went to, when I was a junior, we switched to public school, went to a public high school for the first time in my life and had gotten exposure to a lot of different things that in a Catholic high school you don't get exposure to. And then one of them was the sort of idea that you could just read whatever you wanted. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it goes through this thing where you read, like, these sort of outdated classics, like Go Ask Alex, Alice, and sort of things like that. But then I guess at some point I had been exposed to sort of beat writers and, the, you know, Jack Kerouac and things like that. And by proxy, it's sort of like a gateway. You come across, like, William S. Burroughs. So I think for me the awareness was this was the first time that I had chosen something to read just because I wanted to read it and without any sort of censor of like, you know, you you shouldn't be reading that. You're too young or that's too, you know, it's not Catholic. It's not this or that. It's too much. And then, so I read it like unfiltered and my mind was sort of like, you know, not used to processing the sort of adult themes, the sort of open honesty, this, frank discussion about like sexuality and gender and drugs and culture and I think it kind of really like hit me like at the first time I was like I'm reading something that like my parents haven't read Mm -hmm. or like I'm reading something that even like my siblings or my friends have not read because when I went back and I was like you guys have to read this like naked lunch like it's amazing it's like You'll like you'll you'll be like kind of like puking in your mouth, but then also so like you know energized by reading this, like it had such an effect on me, and that kind of like opened my eyes to like the like breadth of different kinds of literature. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I kind of like even as a mom, like you talk about like being exposed to things that are not age appropriate, <laughs> and I think maybe that's a reaction to it, like oh, you know. If I hadn't been 18 years old and been first exposed to Naked Lunch, like, you know, what, if I had read that when I was, like, younger or, like, had, you know, an idea that there were all these different kind of counterculture writers out there, like, what, how would my mind have, like, intellectually expanded? Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel like that's why maybe... Maybe. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I also think part of it is, well, one, I want to say something, which is I definitely don't blame people who who struggle getting through Naked Lunch for reasons beyond the like narrative structure 
Because, like, whether intentionally or not, that book now, I think, definitely reads as a pretty stark and kind of horrific first-person account of internalized homophobia. Like, and that could be very tough to read. I also think that, like, well, you could we could do a whole podcast just talking about William S. Byron. Sure. He's just... But the, the other thing I was going to say is uh, I think people need to read more poetry. I read a ton of poetry when I was a kid and I feel like it prepared me a lot to read, like, stuff that is not well, like, married to a strict, like, linear traditional well, narrative. That's a perfect example. I, as a child, was not exposed to poetry because mm-hmm. when in Catholic schools, when they had English and English literature, they didn't talk about poetry. Not even like William Blake? No. Weird. Because I think William Blake is too avant-garde. Yeah, So I, I never had an exposure to... The things that I've never had exposure to, I'm hypersensitive to the fact that I don't know a lot about. Sure. So like poetry and classical music and, you know, the theater. Mm-hmm. There were just things that we weren't exposed to as a child, and I feel like they're important things to be exposed to. I feel like children need to play a musical instrument. I never played a musical instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, so I kind of don't have that sort of understanding. And it's the same thing with poetry. I think people need to read more poetry. I agree with that. And I think there's a lot of... The problem with that is if we encourage people to read more poetry, then it's going to make poets think that they're not the worst people on earth. And as someone who's written a ton of poetry, let me tell you, they're the worst people on earth. I personally think that like any kind of like artistic thing, people should have a survey understanding. Sure. So they should know like a lot about art, even if they don't know like a lot about specific artists, that they have a sort of understanding of the history of art. You have understanding of like the breadth of like literature. Like you take a survey course when you're in college, your whole life should be like that. Sure. Like so, people who are exposed to literature or exposed to poetry should learn. About a lot of different kinds of poetry, not just like Western poetry, too. Yes. Sort of like, you know, like different cultures and the history of poetry and the sort of, you know, non Western mm-hmm. view of like literature and society. I think that's more we're lacking than we don't read enough poetry. We don't read enough varied kinds of poetry. Yes. Well, we should promote poetry, but not promote poets. And in fact, Lock them all in a giant prison on top of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. I also think that we shouldn't use the mandatory, you know, experience of poetry to be something very difficult like Beowulf. Like, <laughs> like, what, like when you, like, you talk a lot about this weird book that I ordered out of this, like, magazine that, like, sold, like, paperbacks, the top 100 poems of all time. Do you remember that weird book that we had? In I have house? that in my, on my bookshelf right now. Right. I still have that. It's huge. It's huge. But, see, that in my mind was, like, oh, that's a good source to have, like, a reference for li- different kinds of poetry. I mean, it has William Blake in it. It has, like, Walt Whitman. It has, like, a lot of different mm-hmm. kinds of poets and different kinds of poetry. And so in my mind, that was like, okay, that's a good book to have because it exposes people to, like, Stephen Crane as well as, like, I don't know, some more modern poets. Yeah, I read a t- I, I poured over that book as a kid. I don't know why, what compelled me to do that, but I was, like, obsessed with, like, flipping through it to random pages and reading, like, oh, here's, like, a Pablo Neruda thing and, like, here's a, like, that Allen Ginsberg 
poem about being in the grocery store. But what was that one poem that you... That it came back and it was really funny because it became like a meme almost on the internet. The, oh, the... The plums. Yeah, this is just to say, the William Carlos Williams yes. poem about eating the uh, the plums in the icebox. Yeah, that did become an internet meme for a while. People thought that was real funny. Some of them really... It actually does get me every time. I don't like memes, but every I ate the plums joke really gets me. But see, I think that was like... So in my mind, that was like a way to like passively introduce poetry and then sort of make it like something that you thought about. Yeah, yeah. Instead of being like, you know, you're in English class and they teach you what a haiku is by telling you the pattern of how to write a haiku. Instead of saying like, here's 500 haikus, like have at it. Like, Yeah, yeah. So maybe if you're exposed to sort of a baseline of like an understanding of literature and poetry, mm-hmm. approaching things like reading Ulysses doesn't seem that overwhelming. Like if you if you don't grow up in a house where people talk about literature a lot, but you are interested in literature, then you as a solitary entity approaching something like Ulysses is difficult. But growing up in a, you know, or Growing up or talking to people say, hey, I'm reading this really weird novel. And then somebody saying like, okay, tell me more about it. Yeah, that sounds really weird. And then sort of helping you process. Yeah. I, I mean, guess I, like maybe... my frustration with books was has never really been couched on the like, I don't get this. Like, it's if I'm frustrated with a book, it's usually because it's like boring or like self-important. See my uh, screed against death and Venice. Well, maybe that's why my my new initiative is for more babies to read Naked Lunch. Will yes. be very popular. More babies should read Naked Lunch. Um, that's my. They could at least read Junkie. That maybe is that more <laughs> digestible for a baby. What was the one typewriter one that he wrote? That's the Naked the Naked Lunch has the typewriter Na- thing. Is it? Maybe I'm thinking of like the Adding Machine, where he has actually has a novel called The Adding Machine. Do we have anything else to talk about? I don't think so. I mean, I was going to go on a rant about how much I despise Susan Orlean's The Library Book, but I feel like people can just go on Twitter and find that themselves. Okay, sure. So. Wait, what, what, well, now I'm genuinely curious. <laughs> what is it about, you don't have to go into the whole thing, but like, can you give me a brief well, insight into what your deal with this book is? Because last time we, you and I talked about Susan Orlean, you were reading The Orchid Thief, and you seemed like you really liked it. I really did, because it was very weird, and it was about this weird niche kind of nonfiction novel. The thing, the problem that I have with the library book, the library book is her newest book, and it's basically about the burning of the Los Angeles Public Library in the 80s. Okay. But the way that she writes is... She has, like, an incident she's writing about. Like, The Orchid Thief was about, like, a criminal case about a man who stole orchids from a federal land. True. But then she also inserts herself into the story. Wasn't about Nick Cage being depressed? No. (laughs) Okay. So she puts herself in the story and she starts talking about it. And the beginning of the book is about this sort of... Um, She's talking about her memory of libraries and how much she loves libraries. And, Mm -hmm. like... 
there's one part. I'm not even going to tell you the part that's going to inflame you because it inflamed a lot of people in the internet. But the beginning of the book, she says, <laughs> now I want to she know. talks about how much she loves libraries. And I, as a librarian, this is one of the things that I hate is like when people find out you're a librarian, they immediately either tell you how much they love reading and love books or they confess they haven't read enough books or, you know, some they make some kind of confession relating to reading. So she talks about how much she loves the public library and even goes into one part where she says, she was in love with the librarians. All the librarians were beautiful, and she couldn't stop looking at them because she loved libraries and she loved librarians. Okay. So then you're like grown. So then she starts talking about like the, you know, it's like this whole sort of thing where she talks about how much she loves books and she loves libraries. And it's supposed to be like a love story to libraries. But if you're a librarian, it's kind of like phony, and you kind of feel like it's kind of like, condescending to you because the work that you do as a librarian to help people connect to information and to books she's sort of playing it over by saying like librarians are beautiful and nice and angelic and you don't like to be called as like a special pupper that uh i would literally die for yeah i i it's, <laughs> you don't like that <laughs> so a it's very like, good doggo librarian yeah and I, feel, and I feel like it's like I wanted the book to be more about the public library and the incident that happened and then the trial that's a, you know, that is afterwards. And she started talking about how much she loves librarians and how much fun it is to go to library conferences because librarians are so into the culture of being librarians. And it's kind of like a glossy sort of look into the work that librarians do. So it's kind of like insulting. Uh, like everything is pretty like libraries are pretty they smell good they're like cathedrals to learning and there's a lot of description about the light coming in and shining on the books and you know are you sure that this is we got the introductions right and that you're andrea not nate because are you the one whose criticism is this isn't gross and dumb enough well here's the thing (laughs) so she talks about the public library and the burning of the books. There's a fire that happens. The whole entire building is destroyed. Four million books are destroyed. Devastating. Like, and as a librarian, you're, you're like, especially like me as a librarian, a lot of my work that I do is collection management. So I deal with like disasters and, and things like that. So that was kind of like, spoke to me. But at one point where she's trying to understand like, why people are so upset about libraries burning, she decides that she's going to set a book on fire. <laughs> and then all the hard, like, emotional, emotional, so like, um, back and forth that she has to go through with her love of books and love of libraries. And, like, you know, she doesn't want to destroy a book. And even if a book is falling apart, she keeps it because the, the physical entity of the book is so important to her. So then... This is the part that's going to make. What book does she destroy? I'm going to tell you because this is the part that's going to totally make you groan. So, it's right in the middle of the like wildfire season in California, and she lives in California. She lives in Los Angeles. She goes out to her backyard with this book, and she's going to set it on fire. And the book is Fahrenheit 451. Oh God! Really? So she sets this book on fire to make an emotional connection to how people feel when they had seen the. (laughs) Los Angeles Public Library burning. I don't you know, understand. I thought she loved libraries. How is she not grokking why people are upset that the library burnt down? Well, that's, that's kind of the problem. The only part I liked about the book, and I, the only part that I really could relate to, 
was at one point when she was talking about her reading life as a child and her parents spent a lot of time at the public library and that they didn't buy books. And the reason why they didn't buy books was because her parents thought that the act of reading was a journey and you didn't need a souvenir. So they weren't book collectors. And then... Okay. Which is how I feel about it. Because I don't collect books and I don't... I actually buy very little books. Most of my books I get from the free library. But I feel like... So that... a big difference between you and I. I I have a shit ton of books. Yeah, but I feel like for me, I... After spending my whole entire day surrounded by books... Well, I think the big difference is I'm... Well, some of them I do collect. Like, I collect, air quotes, like Doc Savage books. Because it's like a a specific thing. Like, it's these specific editions with these specific illustrations on the covers. I want to have all of them because they're a neat cultural artifact. The other part of it is that I like to have the books around because I want to study them. And see what I can fucking steal from them to make my trick people into thinking I'm a better writer. So, I mean, as a librarian, I'm not a book collector. I, sure. I've never was. And the books that I do have are books that have very special meaning to me. Sure, sure. So, so I did enjoy that. But the rest of the book was sort of like... I don't... It's like, it waffles between like <laughs> telling the story in a compelling way about this incident that happened in Los Angeles. And then sort of like... Just waxing poetically about the beauty of like libraries and library books and librarians. I mean, at one point, she describes her experience as a non librarian going to a library conference. I mean, authors get invited to library conferences all the time. Oh, right? she wasn't invited as a re, she was invited just as an op to observe just, librarians in their natural habitat oh, of okay. being at a conference. I mean, it was kind of insulting. I don't know. I like libraries, I go to the library a lot. Uh, I just can't get over that it was Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> I liked The Orchid Thief a lot. And I thought that I would like this. But then, like, reading it and, like, reading about it on Twitter and then talking to other librarians who also read it. And then I kind of think, like, one of the things that insulted me most about the book, and I know the book is about public libraries, but it's like she's almost not aware that there are any other kinds of libraries other than public libraries. I mean, I'm sure she is. She has to be, right? Like, she went to college, I assume. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with writing a love letter to public libraries. Like, I'm never going to say a bad word about the page master. But I feel but like, like it's just maybe if you're not a librarian and you like reading, you'll like this book. But I feel it's kind of like when, like, you know, like uh, the Da Vinci Code movie, like when he goes to the Vatican and you're like, every time like you see, like as a librarian, you see like, or it's the same thing about a writer depicted like in popular fiction or whatever. Oh, yeah. You're kind of like. Sucks. The only, interestingly enough, the only actually good depiction of a writer in pop culture is in the movie adaptation, which is about the Nicolas Cage plays Charlie Kaufman trying to adapt uh, Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief into a movie, which really gets at the idea that like the writers don't know, they don't none of them know what the fuck they're doing. But I don't, and a I, lot of writing is just trying to get free, trying to get paid to do therapy. I don't know. I just I don't know. There was a lot of things that I mean, just. 
by saying like you love libraries and by proxy you're in love with a librarian is kind of like there's a lot of stuff in the book that she says is kind of grown worthy sure no and also i kind of got this idea that like i maybe i because i like the orchid thief i didn't really like hold her accountable to like research but there's a lot of things in this story that i feel like if she loved libraries so much and she did basic research in the library she wouldn't be confused by things yeah okay well that's the library book it's bad i guess no it's not bad it's just sounds bad it's not it's a love letter to libraries but if you're a librarian you don't want it here's the thing about things here's the thing about works of art that are love letters to blank that's all fine and good and i'm sure the thing you're writing a love letter to is great guess what nobody ever wants to read a love letter (laughs) but i do have a i think i talked about this in the other podcast that we did i just finished jonathan lethem's new novel the feral detective Mm -hmm. which was not as good as motherless brooklyn but i do highly recommend that book i really enjoyed it how feral is the detective like does he pee outside He's, yeah, he does. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> the story is more about the the woman that hires the feral detective than about the feral detective that the guy who's the, actually the feral detective is not as fleshed out as the detective in Motherless Brooklyn, but it is interesting. Okay. So. Sure. You have anything to recommend? To so- recommend? I don't have anything to recommend. Um... I've been, uh, I started, so like, when I was a kid, I really liked the Artemis Fowl books, um, and you told me that the, it's been 19 years or something since the first one came out, which made me feel like I was a thousand years old, <laughs> and I was about to just crumble in the dust, and but the movie's coming out, and I was, I was been thinking a lot about, like, young adult and children's literature, and so I was like, I want to reread at least the first book. To, like, see how it holds up and to, like, remember what I liked about it as a kid. Um, and it's been weird and interesting. It's, um, a lot of the stuff I, I've, the stuff I did like, I still do like. There's a lot of other stuff in the book that I just kind of, like, memory kind of washed over and, like, sanded the edges off of. It's very pro-cop in a way that I am uncomfortable with now and probably wasn't terribly comfortable with when I was a kid but just didn't care. And it's very unsubtle, which is feels like a weird criticism to levy against a book that is not meant for adults. But, like, I feel like other sort of analogous reading-level books won't... Like, there's this moment where, like, his father has lost at sea. And he has, like, a room with a bunch of televisions on that, that are, like, tuned to news stations that he's monitoring for news about his father's rescue. And when he hatches his big plan... He has to turn those TVs off and, like, change the room over so it's monitoring for something else. And, like, that's a pretty – it's not, like, terribly, you know, complicated or or inspired. But it's a pretty solid image for, like, yeah, he's growing up and he's letting go. And now he has to give up hoping that his dad will come back and take action himself. And then the narration just tells you that. It just goes, hey, by turning off those TVs in a way – he was letting go. And it's like, yeah, I, I got it. I figured it out. And there's just a lot of that in the book. But also, it's still like the characters are still cool and the dialogue is re- still surprisingly sharp. Um, and there's interesting ideas at play. A lot of it, like, 
<laughs> a lot of it is uh, makes less sense than I thought it did when I was a kid. There's a lot of weird stuff with language. There's a whole thing where it's like um, the fairies just use hieroglyphs as their language, but they read it in a spiral. And like he translates the fairy language, but then he reads it in English and it just rhymes, which, you know, shouldn't. And stuff like that. Like, and there's a whole weird thing where it's like the fairies have been around for thousands of years, but they've never had a female recon officer. And I don't know if that's supposed to be like deliberately like look at how unprogressive the fairies are compared to the humans that they think are apes. Or if it's I'm just supposed to accept that uncritically as like, yeah, they've never had a girl officer. Do you think that it's sort of, I guess now, maybe you're reading it now after so many, um, there's been this sort of trend to produce more sophisticated writing for but children I think and even young adults. Stuff that's contemporaneous or stuff that's earlier is a little bit more sophisticated. Like, I think like Harry Potter, if I'm remembering correctly, has is, is a little bit more subtle than this in just terms of the like actual like word to word writing. And then I know that some that earlier stuff like The Last Unicorn and Wrinkling Time are not quite as heavy handed as this is. But maybe this is aimed at a younger, an even younger audience than those books. I don't know. Uh, but there's still a lot of stuff I do like in it. Like I said, there's this great character who's like the tech support guy for the LEP recon, the Leprechaun. And he's like. He lives in an underground secret society that's monitoring humans all the time and is hidden from view. But he's so he's like part of a conspiracy, but is paranoid about other conspiracies that he thinks the humans are also spying on him. And he wears a tinfoil hat, and that's like a very funny gag. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's a mixed bag. It's it's I wasn't expecting it to like read it and be like, God damn, this is good. But it's like so it's in some ways it holds up, in a lot of ways it doesn't. It'd be interesting to see how the movie turns out. I guess the first movie is supposed to be out. I mean, the movie—we already know the movie's doing some things to that are like when I was like talking about the weird thing with oh, she's the first girl, the first female recon officer, and that's weird because the fairies have been around since before the dawn of human civilization, and this organization that she's a part of has existed at least as long as human myths of leprechauns. But in the movie, her commanding officer is. I forget who it is. It's played by a woman. So it's like that is just gone. There has been a female recon officer before. So that's just not part of the story anymore. But is is that like a refresh, like putting a modern aesthetic on, you know, in the climate of today, like how things are. There's more gender I definitely think it cleans, cleans some stuff up. It's also like one of the things that's unclear to me reading the book is how much, how big a hypocrite I'm supposed to think the fairies are there's this very weird part where she becomes above ground and she's like humans are gross they're polluting everything I can smell the pollution in the air they put their toilets inside and that's stupid because the best part about pooping is returning the nutrients to the earth and then literally the next paragraph is like she put on her wing pack it was gasoline powered and I'm like is that supposed to be hypocritical because like other points in the novel it seems like if it was, the narration would have pointed it out to me. And if it's not, then what is going on here? And I could see if you were adapting it, you would take some time to clean up some of that stuff. Well, so it yeah. reads a little a little easier. I haven't, I mean, other than the first novel, 
the first Artemis Fowl, which I think we read together because you were young. Yeah, it would have been like nine years old when it came out. I I think the only thing I've read that he had written was he wrote the final Hitchhiker's Guide. Which yeah, is, I've never read that, but you, you said that it was pretty good. Here's why I, it's called And Another Thing. I One of the reasons why I thought it was good was because he had been so careful to write in the style of Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe he's good at mim- he was good at mimicking enough the subtleties of Adam's writing style that it made it fit into maybe not as seamless as it could have been, but made it fit into the sort of aesthetic of those novels. And it wrapped up all of the like unfinished threads of the series. Okay. So I'm not saying that like he as a writer was really good and was equal to the quality of writing as Douglas Adams, but that he could mimic that style. This is what we talked about when I talked about the Millennium series, mm-hmm. Stieg Larsson's, this new writer is, he's not as good as Stieg Larsson writing these types of novels. And the problems that are in these novels are inherent because of the style of this writer's mm-hmm. style. He doesn't, he doesn't mimic Stig Larsson. He does his own style using the same characters, and it's not as good. But I feel like someone like you, who's a huge Douglas Adams fan, would probably be offended by that novel. I, I never, I never read it because I was just like, it was a double-edged sword where it was like, I liked this guy's writing when I was a, like, when it came out, I was like, oh, I liked this guy's writing when I was a kid. But also, it's like supposed to be a sequel to The Hitchhiker's Guide, and like, I was just like worried that it was just going to like make me angry reading it so I just never got around to reading it. I would like to read it at some point. Maybe I'll do a big reread of the whole whole series. But I feel like I mean I can't really tell if Douglas Adams had written notes for the final novel or sort of just sort of because it picks up right where so long and thanks for all the fish. Yeah. No, mostly harmless. That was the last the last one before. So it kind of picks up and then it goes right around and it finishes up where you know it kind of comes to a good resolution so i can't say that the novel is good because he he specifically wrote it if they had any writer who could mimic the style closely to douglas adams it lacks the sort of sophisticated humor that okay yeah this book is not the artemis foul book at least so far where i have in my reread of the first one is uh it's not it's really not there's some funny stuff in it. It's really not trying to be funny. There are a couple pretty good jokes. There's a there's a part I really like where the butler character is like his bodyguard has to do a distraction, so he picks a fight with some people. And there's the part where it's like to his great shame, he dispatched the last one with the spinning kick, and then he like goes back up to meet up with Artemis, and he's like, "Ah, your sensei must be rolling in his grave. I saw that spinning kick you did." <laughs> <laughs> should be i mean it seems like a fun series and it should be interesting to see it like visualized it looks like it's a kind of book that would need a lot of special effects so now's a good time to make it yeah it's also interesting because it's like yes that's true also after the first like two chapters it basically takes place entirely within one house which is interesting i'm sure they're gonna tack on a giant like 45 minute cgi fight scene at the end because Avengers happened and now movies are ruined forever. 
without a giant fight scene. You have a big giant fight scene that destroys a bunch of buildings at the end of every movie because the Avengers did that. I don't like the Avengers, but not a huge fan of that trend. See also Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Gringle, Grundlepliff, <laughs> whatever that movie was called. <laughs> that had the same thing, and I was like, why? That was completely superfluous. They did not need to do that. No, they didn't need. To, they I, didn't need Johnny Depp to vape a fire dragon out of a skull at the end of the movie. <laughs> Maybe Johnny Depp can't make a movie unless you know he has to take a nap, so he has to have time for them to. They have to have like an interlude so he can take a nap. Did you? This is a complete tangent. Did you see that interview he did before that movie came out where he said that Grindelwald was a living Finnegan's Wake? He, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> That's exactly what I was talking about. Go back to the beginning of the podcast because it's right there. Ugh, groan. All right, it's a love letter to uh, James Joyce. That's what it is. He's a living love letter to James <laughs> Joyce. Then why does he have two colored eyes and not an eye patch? <laughs> I don't know. I'm. Not, I need to take a nap. All right, let's wrap up this <laughs> podcast uh, for the next episode. We're going to do Sandman Volume Eight. Eight World's End. World's End. Written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by a bunch of people, because this is another anthology issue. This has some of the weirder stories, and I think this has like the Prez stuff. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that'll be fun. Hob Gadling comes back. You can't stay tuned to hear Nate's monologue about the Prez. I've heard it at least seven times, so I feel like you guys might also enjoy it as much as I do. I, you know what? We'll talk about it. We'll talk about <laughs> Prez. We'll talk about Joe Simon. I guess. That'll be interesting. Yeah, and then... Um, the next novella that we're oh, doing. yes. The next novella. So after... next episode is uh, World's End. And then after that, the next novella we're doing is Three Blind Mice by Agatha Christie. Right. Do something a little less thorny. A more traditional, satisfying mystery. I think. I don't know. I've never read it. Find out. I've never, I've never read all of any Agatha Christie thing. So that'll be cool to do. <laughs> uh, and the uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.